Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Intercepted. I'm Mara Vistendahl, a senior reporter with The Intercept. I spent eight years as a foreign correspondent in China, covering science and technology. While there, I began to report on the growth of the tech-driven Chinese surveillance state. I covered early efforts at facial recognition and iris recognition, along with the Chinese government's foray into social engineering. I left China in 2015. In more recent years, things have taken an even darker turn in the country as artificial intelligence has improved the efficiency of surveillance. In Xinjiang, a territory in northwest China and home to 12 million Uyghurs, the government forcibly collects biometric markers like fingerprints, facial images, and DNA. Previously to monitor Uyghurs in the region, police would pore over hours of video footage and audio recordings. Now, reporters Josh Chin and Lisa Lin write, quote, the new systems used artificial intelligence to eliminate human inefficiencies. They could suck in feeds from hundreds of cameras and microphones simultaneously and sift through them to identify targets in a matter of minutes, sometimes even seconds. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights recently said that the Chinese government's actions amounted to, quote, serious human rights violations against the Uyghur people. Since the start of the pandemic, the state has also used technology to control the movements of people throughout China to an extreme degree and sometimes for reasons that are more political than public health-driven. Josh and Lisa have a new book detailing the reaches of the Chinese government's efforts to monitor its population. It's called Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. They're both journalists for The Wall Street Journal. We talked about techno-dystopia in the pandemic era, what happens when there are no checks on algorithms, and how Western companies helped the Chinese government build the surveillance state from day one. I began our conversation by asking Josh about the story of Tahir Hammut, a Uyghur poet and filmmaker who has first-hand experience of surveillance. Josh told me about Tahir and how his story illustrates the Chinese government's efforts. Yeah, so Tahir is a, he's Uyghur, uh, which is a Turkic Muslim minority group that comes from the far northwestern region of of Xinjiang in China, and uh, he's a he's a filmmaker. He's considered by some to be one of the greatest living Uyghur poets. 
and we encountered him in in 2017, shortly after he had escaped from from China, and he had a really just remarkable story to tell. At, you know, at the time we were looking into uh, how the Communist Party was using surveillance technology there. They started to roll it out this massive, just massive way, and uh, and they were combining it with this this new sort of gulag of internment camps that they had built for Uyghurs. And we were trying to figure out exactly how these two things fit together. It was all sort of very new at the time. And he was one of the very few Uyghurs who who made it out and who who was willing to talk um, and use his name. And he told us, you know, he had sort of, he sort of started to notice things in Xinjiang kind of start to tighten up around the end of 2016. There were sort of new police stations popping up everywhere new clusters of, of cameras. Uh, and at the same time, he was hearing stories of people disappearing. And he, you know, one day he and his wife were called into the basement of a police station in Urumqi, which is the capital of Xinjiang. And they were put through this just kind of dystopian uh, biometric health checkup, basically, where they they had their blood taken, they had their fingerprints taken, uh, their voices recorded. They were asked to read newspaper articles so their voices could be recorded. And then they had three-dimensional face prints made, right? Um, and at the time, they had sort of didn't really understand what was going on. But then over time, they realized that all of this was data that was, was sort of feeding into this surveillance system. It was making it much easier for for police to track them and, and, and other Uyghurs. It wasn't just a health uh, checkup. And No, it was not just a health checkup. And, and in fact, there were, you know, later on, these you know health checkups and, and sort of biometric collection efforts were were aimed at almost all of the sort of 12 million or so Uyghurs who lived in Xinjiang. And what they figured out was that all of this data was being fed into a, a centralized platform uh, that was being used to track and categorize Uyghurs according to the future threat they might pose to Communist Party rule in Xinjiang. Uh, and then, you know, people who were deemed to be, quote unquote, unsafe, you know, there were, there were sort of three levels of, of rating, safe, average and unsafe. If you were, if you were a Uyghur and you were determined by this, by this platform to be unsafe, you were sent to, to an internment camp and, sent, and subject to, to political rehabilitation. So once this all kind of dawned on Tahir, he sort of in, embarked on this odyssey to get his family out. Uh, which was difficult because they, the Chinese government had confiscated the passports of all Uyghurs at that point, and so they had to they had to figure out a way to get the family's passports back, and then persuade authorities to let them out, which they eventually did uh, somehow, uh, and then and then were able to tell the story about what was happening there. You described just extreme levels of surveillance you know, in Xinjiang, but to, to some extent in other parts of China as well. Could you get into what the the Chinese government and the CCP's give as a justification for needing such extreme levels of surveillance? I mean, why do they say they need it? And, and what appeals to them about the technology? Because it, it, it's, it's a lot of work to set all of this up and, you know, go and take everyone's fingerprints. Right. So in Xinjiang, the, the justification is, is counterterrorism. Uh, so, you know, the in Xinjiang, the Communist Party, I mean, Chinese leaders going back centuries have had a difficult time trying to control this region. It's strategically located, it's resource rich, but it's also got a, a sort of very diverse population of sometimes like nomadic people who some of very few of whom have anything culturally to, uh, in common with, with Chinese people. And they've always sort of chafed at Chinese rule. And recently, in the, you know, in the last few years, 
especially in 2013, 2014, there were violent attacks carried out by Uyghurs against Chinese people, including outside of Xinjiang, that that really um, got Beijing's attention. And so, so Beijing's justification in Xinjiang is is counterterrorism. If you look at the Communist Party documents, leaked documents that the the New York Times and and others, including the Intercepted, have have published the you know what the real purpose seems to be is a sort of social engineering effort, right? The idea is that they want to take this group of people who who resist party rule and sort of remold them into good Chinese citizens by you know using data to sort of predict or to to identify the people who need remolding, and that is that's the ultimate goal. Um, and and it's actually a, it's a it's a goal that is sort of spread to the rest of China or that sort of applies also to the rest of China, but in different ways. Uh, they also, you know, they the Communist Party wants to use surveillance technology, sort of behavioral data analysis to predict all kinds of problems and threats and challenges to its rule around the country, including in, in Han Chinese areas, and and sort of try to head those off. And it also wants to use, you know, surveillance technology to kind of you know, in the same way that Google and Facebook use behavioral data to predict what videos you want or what ads you might respond to, they, the Communist Party also wants to use uh, those technologies to sort of predict, to make people's lives more predictable, um, to make uh, society just sort of generally more stable uh, and easier to control. You, you had mentioned terrorism being used as a justification for surveillance tech in China. And in the book, you trace this the history of the global surveillance industry to the war on terror and to the Patriot Act, which was passed after 9-11. Could you, could you talk a bit about that history? It's difficult to overstate the impact that 9-11 and, and the Patriot Act and the war on terror had on digital surveillance in China, essentially, or in China or the world. Um, it essentially created the the global market for digital surveillance, right? Before that, there was, you know, obviously there were surveillance companies, but they were kind of dabbling here and there. Digital was a new thing. Most surveillance and espionage and that sort of thing was was analog. But the, the war on terror and the huge amounts of money that went into it um, spawned companies, not just in the U.S., but everywhere, Canada, Israel, Germany, all over the, all over the world, uh, to feed to feed the the U.S. military's need for for intelligence on the ground in in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and so those you know that set the market, and it also fed a lot of the the technological development and the and the techniques. I mean, obviously, we had Prism, that sort of mass data collection and, and analysis. Those sorts of programs uh, really did pave the way for China uh, in its own surveillance state. You mentioned PRISM, and um, that's a program that was exposed by Edward Snowden when he fled the U.S. with a trove of NSA documents and surfaced in Hong Kong. And those documents show close collaboration between U.S. intelligence agencies and Silicon Valley. And, And in the book, you describe how the effect of the Snowden documents on Chinese government policy was fairly tremendous, right? that it spurred the growth of a homegrown surveillance industry. And can you explain exactly how that happened and, and you know, what the connection between Snowden and the surveillance state in China today is? You know, one of the more striking revelations to come out of him uh, in Hong Kong outside of the U.S. was about China, where he had revealed that that U.S. intelligence agencies had 
compromised had sort of had gained access to a lot of um, just of China, a lot of China's core networks, and, and had had sort of tremendous access to data in China. And I th- and you know the effect of this was I mean this was really f- shocking I think to to the Chinese government just the not that China not that the U.S. would try to spy on it but that it would get so deep into Chinese networks and compromise it so badly. And I think it was just a real wake up call to the Chinese government about the power and the vulnerability of digital technology, right? And so they set about very quickly trying to rid their networks of American tech. They just they just started describing companies like Cisco and Microsoft uh, and and a few others as the as America's guardian warriors. Uh, and so they tried to basically rip them out of of, of Chinese digital infrastructure. Uh, and at the same time, you know, they sort of took on this lesson that, you know, digital data collection was going to be one of the fields in, in which China would compete against the U.S. Or, and, or which governments needed to sort of grasp in order to maintain power and control in the, in the 21st century. Lisa, I know you're primarily a business report, reporter. Do you want to add to that in terms of what happened next with the industry? You, you you began to see in the post-Norden years a big shift away in local governments trying to procure foreign technology. Like These were often very unsaid rules, but if you talked to people within China, you would notice that when government contracts came out, they typically would favor local companies. And you started to see an array of subsidies as well, just subsidizing core technology makers. And in particular, I think you're seeing in in the more recent years, chip makers getting subsidized uh, and local governments just giving giving rewards for their, their agencies or ministries to be moving to Chinese technology. So you, you definitely have observed in the last few years uh, the space for Western technology companies and hardware and the software front shrinking, except for the area of chips in which China still has a way to go before it catches up with the West. Right. I mean, I, I know from reporting on this topic that often the decisions on which technology to buy would be made by local government. And, and you know, for many years, there was a kind of name brand cachet to the foreign companies, you know, because everybody wanted the best technology in the world. And, and, and so I imagine that it, it, it was um, a bit of an uphill battle at first to, to nurture these homegrown uh, rivals to, to the, the, the name brand. Foreign companies. It was definitely a challenge because if you think about things like operating systems, hardware and networking equipment, definitely Huawei has paved the way for a lot of the Chinese brands. Uh, servers, for example, were some things that China wasn't strong in uh, maybe about five or six years ago, but now they have homegrown alternatives. With operating systems, it's definitely been more difficult to kick, but They've been using like open source technology to create their own operating systems. And now you see in government departments, like the request to use Chinese operating systems or even with office software, instead of using like Microsoft Office, you have Kingsoft or a Tencent equivalent um, of office software that China now is now is able to use. So China is making strides, particularly in some fields like servers, um, but in areas such as chips, you know, the West still holds a com- like a commendable lead. You mentioned Microsoft Office, and I recall that at one point, Microsoft even bent over backwards to create a, 
it was it called Microsoft government a version of office specifically for the Chinese government and I, I you know in the book you get into the efforts of US companies to aid in the construction of the surveillance state and you know a lot, a lot of it happened before 2013 and before the 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 Snowden leaks and this effort to to so-called indigenize uh, Chinese technology but could you get into those companies, um, which ones do you think were most sig- significant, and and how have these uh, U.S. and foreign companies justified their their participation in in this creating this very kind of dystopian reality in China? Yeah. So what we found through our research is that Silicon Valley has been there right from the beginning, incubating the Chinese surveillance state, and I, I will bring you back to the. You know, the turn of the century, year 2000, 2001, there was um, some surveillance researchers, in particular Greg Walton, he published a really groundbreaking report basically detailing the who's who that attended one of China's first public security expos. And the people who attended are names you still probably recognize today, like Cisco, Canada's Nortel Networks or Germany's Siemen, uh, Sun Microsystems, you know, one of the Silicon Valley pioneers. And they were all there eager to sell to the Chinese market and looking to tap, you know, what was seen as a promising and booming market at that point. Sun Microsystems eventually went on to sell to the Chinese police its first fingerprint database. Yeah, so that really kind of showed you like the level of enthusiasm that Western companies had for Chinese the China's uh, surveillance state at that point. Fast forward to today, you know, two decades later, you see the same Silicon Valley names um, with more added, selling not just entire systems but components. So Silicon Valley companies like N- Nvidia or Intel. Uh, Seagate and Western Digital, these companies are selling essentially the foundation of China's surveillance state. Seagate and Western Digital sell the hard disk drives that are required to store a ton of video footage because there's so much demand for that storage. And for in terms of NVIDIA and Intel, GPUs and CPUs are critical to running some of the deep learning applications that you see um, in the surveillance state. In China, for example, facial recognition or image recognition to recognize a license plate. So Silicon Valley companies are going pretty deep and pretty far when it comes to the supply chain. And beyond the supply chain, there is still like financial. There are still financial relationships. Uh, if you look at a company like SenseTime, or some uh, SenseTime is actually China's largest AI surveillance company. It recently listed, but pre-IPO, some of its earliest investors have been U.S. companies such as Fidelity Capital or Silver Lake Capital, which is a big PE fund in the U.S. And Qualcomm as well was one one of its early and eager partners um, when SenseTime was first starting out. So Silicon Valley has been embedded in there, and so has Wall Street for quite a while. And and often they, when pressed um, about these ties, they claim ignorance, right? Or that they they are just providing the technology, and the, that the fingerprint system could be used to, I don't know. Just for, for routine policing, for example, or for catching um, traffickers who are kidnapping children, or, you know, it could be used for nefarious purposes. Yeah. So the common refrain is that technology is neutral and 
they can't stop how it's being used. But I think right now what I've been hearing a lot as well is, you know, in particular, when you have components like chips and hard drives, hard disk drives, the companies tend to say that these are not just single-use technologies, they're multiple-use So it's very hard for them, just given how opaque supply chains are, to get down to the bottom of who the end user is, because you have everything from reselling to transship. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And when you talk about the multiple possible uses of a technology, um, you know, you also in the book got into how for many Chinese, the encroachment of surveillance is a welcome development that, you know, in some cases people embrace uh, new technologies coming into their lives. And, and you know, it's one of the things I appreciated about, about the book that you, that it was very nuanced and, and looked also at public buy-in for the creep of surveillance. Um, could you, could you talk about that and, and what you found when you went around and talked to people about this issue? When, when Josh and I started the book, we had assumed uh, that state surveillance was mostly a nefarious thing in China. But as we dug in more deeply, we realized like the same surveillance systems that were being used in Xinjiang were actually, you know, there's a flip side of the coin. Um, these systems were used in other wealthy cities, ma- mainly dominated by Han Chinese, to in, in the terms of smart cities. So, for example, I think the Chinese tend to pull out safe cities as like a common term to describe the smart cities they have in China because for them, the bedrock of a smart city is public safety. So in, in Xinjiang, the surveillance cameras and facial recognition are used to, for example, identify an individual Uyghur if he's going to the mosque too frequently or if he had become a person of interest, it was easy for the police to track him down. That facial recognition and surveillance system in other parts of China would be used instead to identify fugitives on the run. People who had committed crimes and you know the police had some sort of a picture or a profile of the person but couldn't track this person down. And it wasn't just fugitives, it was um, other segments of the population that the Chinese police felt were a danger or a public menace uh, to society. And beyond like the safe city use, you also saw uh, image recognition and cameras installed on various sidewalks. And they were used by various traffic police in China to identify road accidents on the street, for example, um, so that the first responders and the traffic police could be sent there very quickly and you would be able to clear the accident out very rapidly so that traffic flow would continue again. And this was like... 
this was a very welcome development for many Chinese cities who tend to have road networks that are several decades old, but population growth that has been burgeoning in the last decade or so. So when you talk to Chinese um, residents in a city like Hangzhou or Shanghai, very often they would tell you, you know, they understand that they're being surveilled and the privacy implications of such technologies, but they're willing to make the trade-off because for them, it also means more frictionless life in the bigger cities. And probably the last last example that I would point out, you know, facial recognition is it, such is such a creepy and sinister thing when used in the context of Xinjiang. But in a city like Hangzhou, uh, for example, where Alibaba is headquartered, facial recognition helps you make payments. Facial recognition helps you buy a ticket on the metro. Facial recognition is your ID when you go into your office. So it's viewed very differently in different parts of China. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I think I, I moved to China in two thousand four, and I remember, you know, back when you paid with for everything with cash, and there would be long lines at the train station, and you know, it it just took forever to accomplish certain tasks somehow sometimes, and and society was very inefficient, and um, there, you know, to some degree the digitization of all aspects of life in China has made it um, much, much more efficient and, and more bearable in the, in the megacities for sure. But, you know, some of what, some of what you're describing, I, it strikes me that you, you also see in, in Western societies now, you know, people love their Amazon ring doorbells. You know, if you spend any more than five minutes on uh uh, next door or neighbors, these these neighborhood apps. You know, it's it's um, it's it's striking how much people have embraced that sort of private surveillance. And yeah, I mean, do you have do you have thoughts on on that issue on the kind of comparison between public buy-in in in the West and in in China? Yeah, you know, I, it's it's funny you mentioned that because one of the one of the more striking experiences I personally had writing this book is, you know, Lisa and I would go around. Asking Chinese people, oh, we say, oh, there's all this surveillance around, all these cameras, you're being tracked on your phone and everything. And how do you feel about that? And and one of the most common answers was, uh, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about, right? And and you know, us being in China, we just we just in our minds, I think, both thought, oh, that's the China, that's a Chinese response, right? That in our and 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 then I remember coming to the U.S. to do some some reporting on surveillance here and being in a, in a security line at JFK uh, Airport in New York and overhearing a couple talking about some story in, in uh, an American newspaper about Chinese state surveillance and the wife being like, oh, my God, it sounds so dystopian. And the husband saying that exact same line. Well, if you, if you, if you don't have any – if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. And I was just like, oh, that's a that's universal. Like everyone feels that way. That's right. that's really fascinating. And and I think that drives a lot of attitudes globally towards these technologies, right? Because they are convenient. They do they make you feel safer. They make thing they make shopping easier, right? They make bill paying easier. And so you don't want to think. I think most people don't want to think about the the dark sides of that, even if I mean even when they are aware of it. And like my I just actually had this example the other day with my with my mother, uh, who's obviously read the book and is sort of steeped in 
in all this discussion about Chinese state surveillance, um, talking about her ring camera, right. And how great it is because it has this like alarm on her phone that tells her whenever there's someone at our front door, you know? And it's, so it's like, uh, it, it, there's, there's definitely a lot of cognitive dissonance for everyone. And I think, I think there is this danger for a lot of Americans looking at China and being like, Oh, that's like terrible. That's Orwellian. It's so, I'm so glad I don't live in a society like that. And, and, and sort of not thinking about as a result, sort of ignoring what's happening in the U S which is really significant. Um, I mean, obviously there, there are some real differences with China, you know, in particular, you know, in terms of things like rule of law and, 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 you know, independent media, which China doesn't have to kind of restrain, the use of these technologies, uh, but but it's definitely out there, right? I mean, police in particular use uh, use some of the same police in, in China and the U.S. sort of use a lot of the same technology, and they have similar attitudes, right? They're like, these are great tools; these are great tools for finding the people I need to find. Uh, so why wouldn't I be able to use them? I think COVID was a game changer. You know, the assumption the assumption that you would only be targeted if you had done something wrong or if you were a minority really kind of went out the window with the the arrival of the coronavirus because all of a sudden every person in China 1.4 billion people started being tracked by state surveillance um, the state telecom companies would monitor where you went and use use that data to essentially assign you a health code uh, green, red, or yellow, depending on the health risk you were. If you had crossed path with another COVID patient and were, and were close contact, or if you were in a city or a town where a COVID outbreak had happened, you know, so the the state now knows all this and it's tracking you twenty four seven. So I think the coronavirus brought um, like a new watershed of surveillance to China. Uh, in the sense that it wasn't just people in Xinjiang now or persons of interest that were targeted on a real-time basis. Now everyone's being watched on a real-time basis. And, you know, if you are unlucky enough to cross path with uh, close contact, then you would be subject to the same sort of quarantines and the same sort of treatment that Uyghurs in Xinjiang would have been if they were identified as a threat. And yet, as you noted in the book, many people accepted um, that tracking in exchange for, you know, the freedom to move around, to go to restaurants, um, to go to parties in 2020. And, you know, for many months, um, China was was this example of one of the few examples in the world of a country that had really managed to keep the virus out and keep a functioning state and you know, people were able to go about their lives. And so I wonder, your reporting stopped earlier this year and over the past few months, you've seen this series of lockdowns encroaching on many people's lives in China. You just horrible scenes coming out of government quarantine centers. How has it changed attitudes toward tracking and toward the health codes? Yeah, that's that's been a really... Um fascinating and I think illuminating developments since the since we finished reporting for the book um, uh, so yeah for, like you said for, for for months and months China did this really remarkable job in keeping the virus under control and that a lot of that was a result of, of their, their ability to leverage surveillance technology and, and, and tracking of, of their population on a just massive uh, almost unbelievable scale. And then, you know, essentially the difference was Omicron, right, which just was just too infectious. It just spread faster than than even China's surveillance systems could keep up. 
and and so then what you saw is a flip back to the the kind of dark side, the more dystopian side of the surveillance state, uh, much more like what you saw in Xinjiang, kind of hard harder surveillance, right, where they were using it to keep people locked up. Um, so you had just truly <laughs> dystopian scenes of you know like robot dogs and drones like prowling residential compounds in Shanghai and other big cities and yelling at people to get back in their apartments or or to people stop people climbing out of ropes from their windows exactly um, right, because like they had they didn't letting they didn't get down rope food. ladders yeah 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 exactly i mean just really really grim scenes or or even now you see these videos of people who are, are running out of shopping malls or Ikea, or Ikea's or big other supermarkets because someone is tested positive and they don't want to get stuck in that area. And it looks like stuff out of something out of a zombie movie, right? I mean, literally just people scream, like running for their, seemingly for their lives. And so um, it has, has produced a backlash. Uh, and I think you do now like a backlash on a, on a, on a major scale. In the past, you did have sort of smaller instances of pushback, little pockets of pushback. Um, but now it's, it's, it's much bigger. Earlier this year in, in the city of Zhengzhou, there was, a, there was an instance where um, local security forces were trying to prevent um, some bank customers from going to protest uh, over their deposits, which had been frozen as part of a fraud investigation. And in order to prevent the protest, they, they exploited this health code system that everyone um, has to abide by, the, these sort of the smartphone app that tracks that Lisa was talking about that tracks your COVID exposure. The police used that system to turn all of the pro- protesters' codes red, right, as they arrived in, in the city. And that allowed, that gave them the justification to ship all the protesters off to a quarantine hotel and hold them there until they, until they went home. And so, you know, that actually, that, that produced a huge, that went viral and it was a massive, massive just public outrage over it. And, they, and the, they actually had to fire the top security official in that town, which is, which is unusual. Um, I mean, you definitely had backlash against, the, against company, like corporate abuses of, of data um, and of surveillance, but, but rarely government use. Um, and so, so I think you can see the pushback uh, and, and we'll have to kind of, well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So I wanted to discuss the issue of error in AI because, you know, I would say I've heard privacy advocates say that a functioning civil society is it's important not just to control surveillance creep and, um, you know, find out what the police are buying in the United States, for example, but, but also to point out when an AI gets something wrong. Um, so, you know, in, in the U.S., technologists have exposed bias in AI against women, against people of a color. And, and, you know, they've also called BS when tech executives make some very outlandish claims. And in, in, your, in the book, you, um, you talked to an executive at a Chinese drone company uh, who was marketing drones for running fever checks on people. And I was struck by this thing he told you, um, which he was talking about the fact that the the tech was emergent and didn't exactly work yet. And and he said, you'll never succeed if you don't try. Um, And I thought about the fact that, you know, being erroneously determined to have a fever in China, as you just pointed out, can have very disastrous effects. You could end up in a quarantine center for weeks. And and so I wonder, you know, what are the long-term effects of have of, of, having a largely unchecked AI 
um, field in China. So I remember talking to that drone executive and, you know, what he answered basically encapsulates the the whole mood of the Chinese in- internet industry at that point. It was all about iterating quickly and you didn't have to have the perfect product, but you would just push it out anyway, which really works um, on the consumer front, right? If you have various iterations of uh, an app. A mapping app, for example, or or an e-commerce app, it doesn't doesn't matter that there are bugs in there. The bigger implications come when it's used, obviously, for national security and public safety reasons. And someone is someone is mistakenly identified as either having a fever or having committed a crime. Um, the the thing about China is China is not an open society, and there's no open access to data or information either. So this kind of means that we can only talk about what these surveillance systems do. How effective they are in reality is still something that's you know very very much hidden or would be considered a national secret. It's not something that's public. So that's kind of why it's been very hard for us to assess how effective the policing the the, the safe city systems are. Um, what I do know and what I can tell you is I remember we went to a conference by Interpol, hosted by Interpol during our, our months of reporting. And I met a Chinese, uh, a Chinese researcher from one of the Chinese public, uni- public security universities. And I talked to him about the surveillance system. And I said, why are you guys doing this? Do you realize the privacy implications? And for him, you know, what he felt was the the real benefit of the system was because he said the Chinese police are grossly under-resourced. Um, so in China, you have one policeman for every 700 citizens. In a country like the US or the UK, you have one policeman for about 400. And that's the number in the US. And for the, for the UK ratio, it's like one to 440 citizens. So the Chinese police see themselves as grossly under-resourced. And to make up for that, lack of resourcing, they're turning to digital technologies like AI and surveillance cameras, for example. So they view it as something that will increase their efficiency and effectiveness uh, without actually realizing the repercussions of what it can uh, it can bring about. We talked about Western companies making technologies or components um, for surveillance tech in China. And in the book, you also get into Chinese companies exporting technologies around the world to the global south, to elsewhere, to the Central Asia, Eastern Europe. Could you talk about what's going on there? Could you go into the example of Uganda and and what's happening there? So yeah, so so Chinese companies, um, in particular Huawei, uh, have been have been selling safe city systems, these sort of state surveillance starter kits around the world, particularly in Africa. And and one place where we found this happening was was Uganda, which is, you know, a sub-Saharan country uh, that actually is a a recipient of of major U.S. aid and uh, has a fairly or had a fairly close relationship with the U.S. for, for many years. And what we discovered there was the the leader Yoweri Museveni. Uh, he's, he's a strong man. He's been in power for for decades. He f- was facing this new threat from a, from the political opposition. There was a new political figure, a former pop star named Bobby Wine, who who was had a tremendous amount of pe- of appeal to younger people and poorer people who were sort of left out in Uganda. 
uh, and was really, really pushing Museveni. And so in response, Museveni turned to his security chief. He said, give me tools. I need tools to sort of get this under control. And uh, one of the one of the people that the security chief reached out to was the Chinese ambassador in Kampala, in the capital of Uganda, who who then made a connection with Huawei, which has a really extensive business in, in Uganda. And they put together a, a package offering a Chinese surveillance system. As part of the sales pitch, they flew Ugandan police out to to China, to Huawei's headquarters, but also to the Ministry of Public Security's headquarters uh, next to Tiananmen Square, where they where they got a demonstration on how these systems can can be used. Uh, and then shortly after that, they came back and they and they signed a, a deal. I think it was one hundred and twenty seven million dollars to build a kind of Chinese style surveillance system in Kampala, which Museveni promptly put to use tracking tracking the opposition. And one of the, you know, so one of the interesting things when you when you look at this is. Um, you know, it's very difficult for other countries to replicate what, what China does, right? I mean, China has this huge bureaucracy. It's very relatively competent. They obviously have lots of money and expertise so that they can roll these systems out and run them relatively well. Um, very few other countries have that. And, and you know, especially in, in places like Uganda with, with fewer resources, they don't, you know, um, you know, something as simple as a, uh, an ID database, right? Which, you know, in China, they have a centralized database where all 1.4 billion people, you can check their face and their name and everything like that. You know, um, Uganda doesn't really have systems that are, that are that complete. That said, um, Museveni did manage to use his, his Huawei systems to, to track down and, and arrest huge numbers of, of opposition supporters. And in the last election, he did emerge victorious despite um, despite a lot of people thinking that, that Bobby Wan should have won. You've outlined very extensively the problem with the explosion of, of surveillance tech in China and around the world. And in terms of what can be done about it, I mean, one, there's the issue of gaps in export controls, um, which don't think we should bore everyone by getting into export controls, but that's one thing that needs to be changed, which you address. Yeah. But you also talk about countering um, China's model of surveillance by offering, quote unquote, democratic alternatives. I, what would that actually look like when it comes to surveillance technologies? Like, is there such a thing as a democratic alternative to a um, package of surveillance technologies that can be used by the Ugandan government easily, quickly to, to suppress opposition? So I, I think there are things that you could do both at the national and the global level. The global level is pretty simple. It's getting everyone on the table, figuring out a global standard to the use of AI um, in policing systems and to make sure that you know there's a code and everyone adheres to that code of conduct. On a national level, you're definitely already seeing examples, although most of these examples are not in the US. Um, for example, the EU has been quite forward uh, with dealing with the risk of such new technology. So the EU has a draft AI law in, in the works. And in this, as part of this AI law, they have essentially banned real-time uh, sort of AI use in law enforcement. So that's already putting their foot down um, on the technology. And that's one, one 
you know, one example that I can point to. The other example I would point to is the UK. And I often get this question when we were researching the book or even in interviews now, people ask me how, how different is Beijing from London, for example, because uh, London has a lot of cameras as well. Well, firstly, the cameras in London were installed many, many years ago and, and aren't, are running on more, uh, are running on older technology versus the ones in China. But I think that the second difference with the UK and China is the UK actually has an independent biometrics commissioner. It used to be called the Surveillance Camera Commissioner. It's an independent oversight body that regulates and has, you know, provides a check and balance to make sure that if police departments have procured these technologies, they're utilizing it in an, in a way that's only proportional to its use and only when it's really needed. It it's not perfect, but it does limit the potential for abuse. The UK also already has a code of conduct for surveillance camera use, which law enforcement agencies and companies can follow. So I think these are two examples that I can probably point to as uh, promising developments in the space. Yeah, and I mean, the only thing I would add to that, I mean, I think in, in, in you know, the issue, particularly in the United States, um, is that we haven't really been having a serious conversation about these technologies other than like surveillance, state surveillance is bad, right? Which is a very kind of like default American view of things, uh, which, which is totally understandable and which I, I probably share um, at a kind of uh, elemental level. But, you know, the, the problem with that is, is that, you know, just by sort of brushing it all off is it's all terrible and, and, and Orwellian. We don't really wrestle with the uses of these technologies, right? The fact that they are, they can be useful in certain certain circumstances. Um, and, and so I think, you know, ultimately, I mean, just, I mean, just to get started in the United States, I think we need to have that conversation and and you probably need political leaders to make it a priority, um, you know, and to, and to, and to sort of get serious about weighing how we want to, how we want to deal with these technologies. And I don't think, I don't think there's going to be a simple answer, right? I mean, and, and, you know, I, Simple answers are sort of what what authoritarian governments offer, right? Uh, you know, it's just like leave it to us. Uh, we'll figure it out. This is the only thing you need to worry about. Um, you know, the U.S. democracy is about deliberation. It's about compromise. It's complex. Um, we, you know, as Americans, we haven't really dealt with with complexity all that well lately. But I think this is one of those instances where we're just going to have to kind of feel our way along um, as new technologies arise and try to sort of figure out how to how to maximize their benefits while minimizing the the damage they can do to society. I think that's difficult, but I also think it's really important just because of the power these and future technologies have to, to really alter our, our society and politics. And we need aging senators to understand the technologies, which, you know, for anyone who's sat through a Senate hearing on tech, um, we have a long way to go. Um, well, thank you, Josh and Lisa, for joining me. This has been a great discussion, and it's been excellent to have you on Intercepted. It's a real pleasure, Mara. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mara. It was fun. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, 
makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Deconstructed, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Mara Vistendahl. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.